Hello friends and welcome back to another episode of Stuck on Arrakis. I'm back after a little break. I was feeling kind of burnt out so I took a week off just to kind of chill and reset and stuff like that so I could come back better than ever and I think I am <laughs> because there's a lot of exciting stuff happening in the next couple weeks. So today um, we're going to be talking about chapters 7 through 13 of Winter's Heart uh, by Robert Jordan. It's the ninth book in the Wheel of Time series which if you're listening to this you probably already know that. <laughs> but before we get started I have a couple of things that I want to talk about. First and foremost, I will be participating in the um, Wheel of Time charity podcast-a-thon that's happening next week. So uh, I just want to talk about it for j just a second and make you guys aware so you can join in or make a donation if that's possible for you uh, because we are doing the... Well, let me just start from the beginning. <laughs> Uh, the 24-hour, it's a 24-hour podcast-a-thon to raise money for the Cyber Smile charity, which is um, an anti-cyberbullying charity. And what they do is they provide resources for victims of cyberbullying or loved ones of victims of cyberbullying, and they offer a lot of resources for people like me who um, want to be good allies and, you know, just want to learn more about that, you know, the whole issue. And the podcast-a-thon was started by Jono Joe and Tom from the Wattcast. So thank you to all three of you for helping put this, this together because it's awesome. Um, when is it? It's going to be July 24th, 8 p.m. to July 25th, 8 p.m. So it's a whole 24-hour podcast-a-thon. I will be on from 1.30 to 2.45 on Saturday, July 25th. And I'm going to have two special guests, uh, DT from Watt, the Watt Trivia Discord server and Lauren from Unraveling the Pattern. And we're going to be talking about not only the Wheel of Time community as a whole, but also the um, Watt calendar and directory that DT and I created and have been working on for the last month or so. All of your favorite podcasters are going to be part of this, or most of them anyway. Uh, we have The White Tower, The Wheel Weaves, Wheel Takes, uh, Watt Spoilers is going to be there. I have the schedule posted on Twitter, and I guess I can, like, put a link to the tweet in the description of this podcast episode so that you can look at the schedule and see uh, who's going to be there and what slots you want to tune in for. Daniel Green's also going to be there. The Dusty Wheel is going to be there. And I've heard some rumors that Harriet is going to pop in at some point, so that will be exciting. Make sure you guys tune in for that. And I'll have all of the links to the, in the description to the charity, the link to where you can donate, and just some more information about the whole thing so you can check it out. I'm really excited to be on. I think it's awesome, and uh, I'm really happy to be a part of a community who can come together for a charity like this. Speaking of the Watt calendar... If you haven't checked that out yet, um, there's a link to it in my Discord server. And basically what it is, is it's a calendar of all of the live events that are happening in the Wheel of Time community. So if you're, I don't know, bored on a Tuesday and you want something to do, and you're thinking to yourself, what's going on in the community this week? What live things can I check out? What can I, you know, what can I participate in this week or this month? 
you can check our calendar and um, we have tons of content creators who have listed their live events on the calendar. So that's a great resource for you if you're looking to consume a little bit more Wheel of Time content this week. It's also a directory. So we have a Discord server and all of the content creators in the Wheel of Time community that we can find are listed there. And each one has a channel with their links in it and a channel with their announcements and you can choose who you want to follow, which is really cool. And then all of the content creators have a chat as well. So you can uh, talk to them about their latest episode or show them some love in their chat. And it's just a really cool way to connect with content creators. So even if you're not a content creator yourself, if you are looking for more people like me or your other favorite Wheel of Time content creators. If you're looking to see what they're up to, that's a great resource for you. And we're really proud of what we put together. So check that out. Woo, this has been a long intro. <laughs> and we're not done yet because we have to talk about my creator spotlight for the week, which for a minute there, I was starting to worry if I was going to have enough uh, content creators to discuss, um, you know, to have one every single episode. And then there was just this huge explosion of content creators in the Wheel of Time community, which is kind of why we put the calendar together. And if you're interested in learning more about the whole thing, um, we will be talking about that in my slot during the charity podcast-a-thon, so definitely tune in. But anyway, <laughs> this this episode's creator spotlight goes to Rakapa Sadai, who I love with all of my heart. <laughs> She is a, uh, she runs a YouTube channel called Wheel Talk, and uh, every week or so she talks about one chapter in the eye of the world. And there's a whole spoiler-free section at the beginning, so I get to tune in, and then there's uh, the 13th depository at the end, and that's where she's free to talk full spoilers um, and discuss the context of the chapter and the greater context of the rest of the series. So I always tune in to the first part, and sometimes um, someone will screen it for me, <laughs> and I can watch part of the last part. She's just so entertaining that you can't stop watching, and I have a, I've been having a lot of bad days at work lately, and that's always such a great way for me to unwind and kind of de-stress at the end of the day, is to just watch one of her videos, because they make me laugh out loud every single time. <laughs> Okay, now let's start talking about Winter's Heart. And I'm going to be honest with you guys, this was not the most interesting section. And I think that might be part of the reason why I needed to kind of take a break is because I was just, I don't know, it, I'm still interested and I'm still enjoying it, but it's not like Shadow Rising where I couldn't stop reading it. I just had to keep picking it up and keep going because I just had to know what was going to happen next. This is a little bit less of that. <laughs> so I was just kind of struggling to find the urge to pick it back up again. So I just gave myself an entire week off of not only working on my podcast, but like consuming a bunch of Wheel of Time content just to kind of reset my brain because it was getting to be a lot. Not that I don't love it and not that I won't continue to love it, but that's just kind of where I was. And I think I might not be alone in that uh, because I feel like a lot of people do find these middle books pretty slow and a little bit hard to get through. And I'm not finding that they're hard to get through, but I'm finding that they're harder to get through than the past books have been. So I'm back now and I'm ready to finish this up and get through Crossroads of Twilight. 
so I can uh, move on to Knife of Dreams, which I've heard is a fucking banger, and I'm really excited. <laughs> okay, so this section starts off with a chapter called The Streets of Camelin, which, as you know, is about Elaine, and not a whole lot really happens in the first few chapters of the section I'm going to talk about. And of course I say that, but this episode is probably going to be an hour and a half long because I thought the exact same thing of the last <laughs> section that I did, and somehow I was still able to make that episode an hour and a half long. <laughs> In this chapter, we learn that Elaine and Avienda have a type of magical bond after their first sister ceremony, which I kind of assumed, but I don't think that's been really explicitly spoken of in the past books. And it's not really like the Warder Bond. It's not like, I don't think they can pass emotions back and forth or anything like that. But Elaine can feel Avienda's presence in the city. She like knows where she is, which is definitely part of the Warder Bond. This is cool because I feel like each channeling culture has a kind of magical bond like this. We have the Aes Sedai and Warder Bond, the Ashaman and Aes Sedai bond, and possibly the Ashaman and non-channelers, or anyone else. Maybe even another male channeler, which I don't think is going to happen. Ooh, or maybe it does. Hmm, interesting. Anyway, <laughs> we've only seen one example of this type of bond, and it was uh, Ashaman and Aes Sedai. So I'm curious to see if any of the Ashaman bond to non-channeling women, like their wives or something like that, or I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> One of those. Um, the Aiel have first sisters, and then, of course, the Shanchan have the Suldam and the Damani. And we even see another channeler and non-channeler bond later in the section that we'll talk about. And I'm sure you guys already know who I'm talking about. And I feel like most of the bonds I listed can be used or is used to control another person. Uh, I don't think the first sister bond could be used to control anyone because that's just, it's pretty weak sounding. Um, it's just like, oh, I feel you in the distance. <laughs> but all of the other bonds can really be exploited and people can be manipulated and trapped in those bonds. We see that all the time. Uh, Aes Sedai and Warder Bond, we see that with Rand. We learn a little bit more about the history of the Warder Bond later, and I want to get into that more when I get there. Um, but all of these bonds can be non-consensual, except for the First Sister Bond. Well, maybe. No, probably not. <laughs> um, but yeah, the Aes Sedai Warder Bond, we have Alana um, bonding Rand and then uh, you know, another example later. We've literally only seen a manipulative and non-consensual Ashaman Aes Sedai bond. We, that's the only example of an Ashaman bond that we've gotten. And then, of course, the Suldam and the Damane hurt each other. I mean, the Suldam are terrible to their Damane, and it's absolutely slavery. We also learned that the Aes Sedai are moving into Camelin, and I don't mean Egwene's Aes Sedai. I mean, there are Elida Aes Sedai, coming into Camelin, and there have been three have, that have arrived since Elaine came to Camelin. And it's interesting because it, Elaine is not really convinced that those sisters are working with Elida, and I'm not convinced that they aren't. Elida sent 50 sisters to the Black Tower. Where are all of them? Where did they all go? 
we saw two sisters ride up to the Black Tower and how unsuccessful their mission was, but where is everybody else? Did they also get taken? Because I don't remember seeing 50 other sisters at the Black Tower when we're uh, following... Oh, fuck, I don't remember her name. <laughs> the sister that gets taken by Loghain. When we're following her around the Black Tower, we definitely do not see 50 fucking other sisters there uh, warded or bonded to Ashaman. So they have to be somewhere, and I'm pretty sure they're in Camelin and they're up to no good. Also, I don't know if uh, Elaine has forgotten this, but Elida is still hunting her down. She still has that decree or proclamation or whatever, the warrant out <laughs> for Elaine's capture. I feel like Elaine should be way more concerned about this than she is because Elida is trying to hunt her down and those sisters are definitely trying to make trouble with the Black Tower and Elaine shouldn't want any part of either of that. Not to mention the fact that, <laughs> I mean, this happens later, but Elaine is vying for the throne and it's not going to be pretty. And I think that it's very possible that people want her dead. And we actually see that exact thing happen later. And I'll talk about that later. But I just feel like Elaine is very unconcerned about her own safety, which is kind of weird because she needs to be the queen of Andor and she wants to be the queen of Andor. So you'd think she would take her own safety a little bit more serious. But at the same time, everyone is in this chapter is trying to tell Elaine that it's too dangerous for her to be out and about. Um, it's too dangerous for her to be sneaking around at night. Elaine argues that she needs to be seen and this is a pretty good fucking example of no one else understanding the position that Elaine is in. She is fighting for her, what she feels is her birthright. She's fighting for her livelihood and her crown. And no one but the heir to a queendom would understand what she needs to do or what she has to go through. And she's also not going to listen to you. So just stop trying. Like everybody is always trying to dissuade her from doing things. And you know that she's not going to. While Elaine is out in the streets walking around, despite the fact that everyone told her not to do that, we get to see what Camelin is like right now because it's changed and it's pretty different from when we saw it before because, you know, the world's ending and all that kind of shit. There are tons of refugees in Camelin. Some are merchants, uh, some are people who are clearly destitute with holy clothes and no shoes. And we saw a lot of the same thing happen in Eamon's Field a couple books ago. More and more foreigners and refugees were fleeing the cities that were destroyed by war and, I don't know, the Shan Chan mainly, coming into Emmons Field and having their different clothes there and their different trades and things like that. But not all of the refugees in Camelin are destitute. A lot of them have just moved in and picked their trades back up. So now Camelin is kind of a hotspot for crafts and goods which is lovely. That's really cool. I'm really excited about them. Anyway, Elaine is walking around and suddenly she feels Brigitte coming and Brigitte is pissed. Ooh, she can tell how mad she is. And apparently Brigitte is starting to lose memories of her past lives. 
And I'm not sure if this is like a normal part of her reincarnation or if something is wrong because she fell out of Teleranriode without being properly reborn. But either way, I really hate, oh my god. At first, it was cool that Brigitte was bonded to Elaine because then she was around all the time and I love that because I love her. But now Brigitte is stuck with Elaine and is losing her memories and having to do fucking paperwork because she's, I don't know, captain of the Queen's Guard or whatever it is. And that's not who she is. That's like hiring Kate Blanchett to do to dress up as Elsa for your kid's birthday party or something like that. It's just such a waste of such a great character. Like, I just know that she's going to be stuck there with fucking Elaine forever. Unless Elaine does not win the throne, which is possible. But I'm not, I don't know. I just don't feel like that's going to happen. Because if something happens and Elaine isn't put on the throne, Rand is not going to be happy about that. And he's going to step in and do something. And there's really no one who can stop Rand from doing whatever the fuck he wants right now. But there's definitely some tension building between Elaine and Brigitte. Later in the chapter, Brigitte accuses Elaine of saddling her with a title. She asks Elaine if she thought that would rein her in. Oh my god, she hates this as much as I hate it for her. And I really, really, really hate it for her. It just sucks, man. We're miss gonna miss out on all kinds of Brigitte fun and Brigitte badassery because Elaine has her stuck in Camelin. It's just such bullshit. I'm so mad. Brigitte is one of my favorite characters, man. I would go have a drink with Brigitte. Before I talk about why Brigitte is mad, I had to take a second to refresh my own memory about some events that happened, I think, during Lord of Chaos. So after Rand was kidnapped and the vacuum of power opened up in Andor like we knew it would, Two women proclaimed for the Iron Throne, or whatever. Nian Arowan <laughs> and Elenia Sarand. Okay, I'm probably mispronouncing their names majorly, but you know who I'm talking about. In the absence of a true leader, Dylan had them imprisoned while she was acting as Elaine's regent. And Bergista is upset because the men who were escorting them back to Camelin from wherever they were sent were killed not even five miles outside of town, and I think the two women escaped. So I'm wondering who killed the two men that, that were escorting them, and why? Elaine concludes that they have a spy in the palace, and that spy told someone that those two were being moved, and then they were able to kill the guards and set them free, or whatever. And I'm thinking it's maybe the same person who killed Ispan and Adelias, or she has more than one fucker spy to deal with in the palace, which is also horrifying and probably true. But there's also a good chance that it's the same person who killed the other two. Apparently, these two women were also supporting Gabriel, aka Raven, while he was in the palace fucking with and fucking <laughs> more gays. So... I think it's very possible that these two are dark friends because of their history of, you know, associating with Robin and immediately taking advantage of the vacuum of power that opened up after Rand left. Um, that just makes me feel like they're up to no good. 
Also, apparently, <laughs> Elaine has been disguising herself and sneaking around at night, which is dangerous, and I wish she would stop because there's definitely spies in the palace and Elida's Aes Sedai also in Camelon, and it's just really stupid. I don't know. Also, Avienda is with her during the sneaking around at night, and I'm wondering what they're looking for and what they're doing. Also, <laughs> did they really think that Brigitte was not going to follow them? She can feel where you are, unless Elaine is masking the bond, which is possible. Oh, here's some fresh bullshit that I found out. Apparently, fresh caught, I'm, I'm doing air quotes, but you can't see them, <laughs> but just imagine. Fresh caught is some sort of sick nickname for new warders. And the term originated from a time when warders had not always been asked whether they wanted the bond or not. What the fuck? What the fuck? There is non-consensual bonding happening all over the place all of a sudden. Alana bonded to Rand without his consent, and then later we learn that this used to be a regular practice. Then we have the Shanchan, obviously, but we are getting to know some actual Damane, especially in this book and the last book, and it's like they have Stockholm Syndrome or something. By the way... <laughs> Have you ever wondered whether your pets actually love you or if they just have Stockholm Syndrome? That's a horrifying thought. <laughs> I don't want my pets to have Stockholm Syndrome, and I think about that all the time, and now I don't have to think about that horrifying thought alone anymore. You're welcome. <laughs> Tackle that while you're falling asleep at night. Uh, another example, obviously, is the Ashaman bonding the Aes Sedai uh, that we saw in... Was that Path of Daggers? I think it was. And it's possible that the Ashaman can also bond with non-channeling women as well, and that they can do this without their consent as well. Why they would do that, I don't know. But maybe if it was like a husband and wife or something like that. Because a lot of the Ashaman recruits do have wives and children as well, I believe. Also, I feel like we can definitely count forcing someone to swear an oath to obey you is a kind of non-consensual bond as well. I don't think it's really the same or that it shares the same quality as actual magical bonds, but you can't really get away from someone if they're telling you what to do and forcing them to obey you, right? Oh wait, forcing you to obey them. <laughs> Either way, it's just disgusting. And this is one of the elements that are starting to ramp up kind of the horror and discomfort that I've been feeling about the series because there are so many ways that the characters in this book are trapped and forced to do things and have their freedom and their free will taken away from them and are treated absolutely horribly. That's really starting to ramp up and it's really, really hard to read about. If I have to say something about this chapter... I think that Elaine's perspective is really giving us a more bird's eye view of what's happening within the world's political system. There are leaders missing, two countries that have been at war with each other for a really long time are both hoping to have the same queen. We see, uh, yeah, we see a couple Kyrian and uh, nobles, I think, come in and say, hey, we want to support your bid for the throne. How can we do that? Can we send you some soldiers? And Elaine is like, fuck no, you can't send me some soldiers. We can't have Kyrian and soldiers and, and fucking and Andor. 
The borders are also changing and are hotly contested. That's something that we kind of saw with Egwene as well. So there's a lot happening. And with all of our other characters micro-focused on other little parts of the grand scheme of things, we don't get to see a whole lot of the politics and get kind of a check-in like we did with Pedro Nile for a couple books where he's finding out stuff and we're also finding out stuff with him. So having Elaine interact with all of these rulers and powerful people and nobles, we get to see what's been going on in the world. And that's a really interesting way and I think effective way to look at that. And I think it works well here. The next chapter is called Seafolk and Ken. And when I saw the title of this chapter, I was like, oh shit, something is going to go down in this chapter. It's going to be terrible. I'm, I'm so excited. <laughs> well, as, as it turns out, nothing happens <laughs> in this chapter. Nothing in the whole chapter happens. But there are a couple of, I don't know, uh, kind of interesting things. So let's just talk about those. Apparently, the palace's food supply is, like, infested with bugs and rotting. And Lelena's like, oh, that's weird. But somehow, miss, I was more politically savvy than you at age 10. Can't put two and two together. Because if it's weird that your food is infested with bugs and rotting, maybe something evil is going on where you are. You know what I mean? Like, that just seems like such a bad omen. I feel like any kid who has read a fairy tale would be like, hey, there's probably a witch <laughs> or some evil fucker that's responsible for this. Also, apparently, Rand is sending all the Demane and the Suldam that he captures to Elaine in the palace, which is so baffling to me. I don't understand why he would do that. It's so stupid. First of all, the Demane that they're capturing are pretty wild and pretty powerful. We saw one kill five soldiers in the last book because she got unshielded somehow. They are also completely brainwashed into thinking that they're being leashed and enslaved as some sort of benefit to society. What is Elaine supposed to do with them? What the fuck is she supposed to do with them? They're probably going to have to be stilled because they're too powerful and too brainwashed. They will always be dangerous unless you force them into an oath, and then that's like still slavery. The Aes Sedai are also being really dumb about the kin in this chapter, as we fucking suspected they would. They're trying to make the kin put on novice white and be novices again, which doesn't make any sense. I know that they have their traditions and stuff, but like, come on. These women are older than you by hundreds of years. And you don't need to call them children. They're experienced, full-grown adult women. You don't need to make them do chores because they already do chores. They're fucking adults. They're probably delighted to do the chores. Why don't, instead of having this stupid argument, we all sit down in a room together and figure out how to help Rand win the last battle with these extremely powerful women on his side? Instead of playing house with grown women who have their own organization and know what they're doing and are extremely powerful and know how to use the one power. Why are they getting no respect? This is like telling your grandma that she needs to braid her fucking hair into pigtails again and go play with dolls. Are you kidding me? Oh, by the way, what have the kin been doing? Um, they've probably been figuring out who killed Adelius 
And according to them, it was either Marilyle, and I'm going to, oh, I'm going to fuck up these names so bad. Marilyle, Saritha, or Karine? Karine? I think it's Karine. I don't really know who it was, but I know that it was probably not Marilyle because she was probably tired as fuck from being run ragged by the sea folk because she's having to be their private tutor. <laughs> if she was going to kill someone, it would probably be one of them. Apparently, during Icepan's questioning, she didn't give anything away about the Black Asha other than like some old schemes that had already been done, <laughs> completed, whatever. And that makes me wonder if this is part of the Black Aja Oaths, that you can lie, but you can't speak of the Black Aja or reveal any secrets, even if you're being tortured. Because then, even if they were being mega-tortured, they would literally not be able to reveal anything. So I'm willing to bet that that's part of it in some way, shape, or form. I don't know if I'll ever know what the actual Black Aja Oaths are, but I'm hoping I do. At one point, Nynaeve and Lan come in, and the narration says that death glazes from Lan's cold blue eyes, which is kind of horrifying, but that made me wonder, what's going on with Lan right now, like, mentally? Because he's been through a lot of shit over the last couple books, you know? Moraine died, and their bond was instantly severed, which was horrible for him, I, I can imagine. Like, from the way he reacted and what happened to him afterwards... That was an extreme, extremely traumatizing situation. Then he gets passed to Morel, and uh, she tries to fix him or whatever. Then he finds Nynaeve and marries her, and now he has that in his life. But is it helping ease all that other pain? Is Lan just a fucking mess right now? I wish I knew what was going on with him, because sometimes he seems really happy and really whole again, and then sometimes death glazes out of his eyes and... You know, uh, a couple of other characters have commented on how dangerous he looks and how, I don't know, mysterious and stormy his eyes are or something like that. <laughs> also, at one point, Nynaeve tells Van Deen that she needs to eat and sleep more. And oh my god. Van Deen says, I do eat, but everything tastes like ashes. Oh my god, that's so sad. That was one of the saddest moments in the series for me so far. God, that was heartbreaking. Nynaeve and Elaine have been sending uh, members of the kin into Shanchan-controlled areas to get their fellow kin out before they're leashed and captured. And I love that rescue mission. I love that they are sending members of their group to go and save other members of their group that might be in danger. That's really sweet, and I like it. Elise, who is a kinswoman, I guess, is that what you call them? She's been uh, questioning and observing the Suldom that Rand has captured and sent over for whatever the fuck reason. Which, by the way, I'm assuming he transports them by having Ashaman shield them and then gatewaying them into Camelin. That has to be how it works, right? I don't know how else he would get them there. But anyway, Elise has been questioning them and studying them. And what she finds out is very interesting. So apparently, the Suldam are still denying that they can channel or see weaves, but she says that she can feel something in them, like not quite a spark, but close. Let me read what she says. She says, they still deny they can channel. They can't really, I suppose, but I can feel something. 
Not quite the spark of a woman born to it, but almost. It's as if she were right at the brink of being able to channel one foot posed to step over. And she says that she's never sensed anything or experienced anything like this before, which I think is really interesting. And I'm wondering what's actually going on here. Because with mainlanders, you either can or you can't channel. But these women are in like a whole new gray area. Why is that like that? How is it like that? And what is keeping them from stepping over that line and being able to channel? Is it some sort of like block like Nynaeve had? That's an interesting thought. Huh, interesting. Yeah, I think it might be some kind of block. Like maybe their society puts so much pressure on them to not be able to channel that they're able or they like automatically subconsciously block themselves so they can be, I don't know, free, <laughs> not leashed. I mean, fuck, I would, I would take a block over being a slave and I'm sure all of you would too. They are also putting the ADAM on the Suldom and it's able to hold them which means that they can clearly channel or they clearly have some sort of channeling ability because Adam only work on channeling women, which is also kind of nice because I feel like they're finally getting a taste of their own medicine. But the question is, of course, how do they deal with the fact that they can see weaves and be held by an Adam? Because that goes against everything that they know. And the answer is that they claim that the Aes Sedai are tricking them somehow, tricking them into seeing weaves or using something else that's not the Adam to control them, even though they have the Adam on. Elaine, at this point, has 29 Suldam and 5 Damani. And Rianne thinks that maybe 3 of the Damani are starting to come around and might be ready to be uncollared. Uh, maybe they're starting to see that the Shan Chan way is not necessarily in their best interests and that they can be free and do whatever they want to do. But I don't really trust that and I don't trust it for a lot of reasons. And it makes me really nervous to think that, you know, some of these women who have been brainwashed and who have always been collared have them go free when we've already seen them do so much damage. Two of the Damani, however, still think that they deserve to be collared and that it's in the best interest of society, which I hate. One of them was collared at 14, and she's been a Damani for over 400 years. 400 years of being a Damani. Can you imagine? That's horrifying. This particular Damani is named Olivia, and she is stronger than even Nynaeve is. She's been a Damani for over 400 years. She's been indoctrinated. She's been used and used and used and used. And she's more sh powerful than Nynaeve. And she's in a position now where she could possibly be set free by what the very well-meaning Nynaeve and Elaine. They could agree to let her go. <laughs> and they do. They do agree to set her free. And she eventually escapes, which is terrifying. And what is she going to do now? What is she going to be up to now? Because she's alone and ooh, ooh, man. I bet a Damani that strong and that powerful, I bet they're going to try to find her. Or maybe she's able to escape and get back to the Shan-Chan, but now she knows stuff because she's been in Andor like with Elaine and Nynaeve. I don't know. That theory is just is suddenly brewing in my head. <laughs> uh, 
It's not a complete thought yet either. One of the Damane they captured is named Kara, and she's actually not a Shanchan. She was a mainlander wise one in a village near Tomenhead, which of course was eventually captured by the Shanchan. And because she was a wise one and she could channel, she was leashed. She has not been a Damane for very long, and she's already very indoctrinated. She's worried about the Suldam that they captured, and she doesn't want them to be hurt. She doesn't want anything to happen to them, even though they're responsible for leashing her, which is so weird. Man, see, that's like Stockholm Syndrome. But her reaction and her feelings towards being leashed and, I don't know, having having that bond with her Suldam, I'm wondering if it, it's similar to the other magic bonds that we see in other cultures where they become emotionally attached and if their Suldam is killed, it I know that it hurts them a lot, but I'm wondering if it hurts them a lot, even if they don't have the Adam on. You know what I mean? That's interesting. I mean, maybe, well, maybe the only way to form a Sidar-Sidar bond is through the use of a Terangrial or something like that. I don't know. That's interesting. I'm also curious to learn more about the history of the Adam. How did these women come to be collared in the first place? Who created the Adam? I just really, yeah, I have, mm, I just have a lot of questions about that that haven't been answered yet. So anyway, <laughs> they're all Lan Nynaeve, Vandine, I think, and some of the kin. They're in this room together having sort of a moral debate about whether or not they should let these Demane who want to be released go. And it's really not an easy decision for them because they're powerful and they could harm any of them. They could kill any of them. And letting them go would be putting a lot of people in harm's way. But Land basically says that if they, if the women want to be let go and they don't let them go, then they're no better than the Shanchan are. So I'm guessing they're just going to have to shield them, gateway them to somewhere distant as fuck, with some money and supplies, and then close the gateway and run. <laughs> Although I guess the the Damane could then trace the gateway and come back, or gateway, uh, they probably don't know how to gateway, actually, maybe. But the women aren't going to do that. Nynaeve and Elaine and Lan and none of them are going to agree to do that. Because these are channeling women, and they will absolutely keep them around, because that's kind of their motif lately, that if you can channel, you belong to us. And now that I'm thinking about it, <laughs> I clearly wrote these notes before I reached the end of the section, because we see them actually, well, yeah, we see them actually let Olivia go in, in a capacity. You know, she wasn't collared anymore, she was free to walk around and do whatever she wanted, although... I can't remember if she got explicit permission to do that or if she just decided to herself. But she ends up escaping to God knows where and God knows what she's going to do. I guess we'll have to figure it out. But now we have that to deal with. The Suldam, on the other hand, are not coming around. They can see weaves and they cry when they see them. And then as soon as they it's over, they are so convinced that they're being tricked. It's just so wild. And none of them are going to be like, Oh, yeah, you're right. What we did was wrong. We can definitely channel. Uh, please let us go. They're not going to have that genuine thought. If they do say, hey, please let us go, it's going to be to escape and, I don't know, fuck shit up, I guess. 
Alright, the next chapter is called A Cup of Tea. This chapter is a story of why tea cannot be trusted in this world. <laughs> Listen, I love tea. I don't drink coffee. I just drink tea. Lady Grey is my favorite tea. I literally have some right here. <laughs> but if I was an Aes Sedai in this world, at this point, I would be making my own fucking tea. Because stop accepting tea from strangers. Stop accepting tea from strangers. So we're with Elaine again, and let me just summarize this chapter for you. Elaine drinks some random ass fucking tea and is poisoned and almost killed the end. <laughs> but first, let's look at some important things and moments from this chapter. First, it appears that Elaine has the same outlook on the future as Rand does. Let's leave something good behind after Tarmageddon. Let's innovate and create places where innovation can thrive to make the world better after we destroy it, right? That was Rand's perspective as well. And we already know that she's opening at a university in Camelin, kind of like the one Rand has in Kyrian. Wait, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the one that, he has, that Rand has in Kyrian. I was trying to remember where that was, but I'm pretty sure it's Kyrian. But she says that this school that she's opening will be hers and not Rand's. So she he's not going to have anything to do with it. She probably thinks he wasn't any part of the decision either. <laughs> and Elaine also thinks that she might start a royal post in Andor because she's sick of mail taking so long. And I'm sure everyone else is also sick of mail ta taking so long. And that's awesome. I love that she's thinking about providing that service for her people. I think one of the biggest themes in this section of the book is, or in this book in particular, and the last couple as well, is progressive changes with an eye towards what happens after the last battle. And these universities are going to be places where that innovation can thrive. So that's really interesting and really cool. And I really like this element of the series. Because so many groups are focused on what happens now, like the Aes Sedai are focusing on what's happening right now in the world as the world is starting to end. There are nobles who are also very focused on what's happening now. And the Shan Chan seem to be very focused on what's happening now and the Aiel. But Elaine and Rand are focused on what's going to happen to their people afterwards. And that's one of the best examples of leadership that I've seen in the series. You guys might remember that at some point in a very past episode, I was musing on when our Emmonsfield Five were going to step into their leadership roles. And I talked a little bit about that in my halfway episode, but they're really starting to not only get these leadership roles, because Rand has had leadership roles forever, but they're really stepping up into them now. They're really taking ownership and they're really learning what's important, and that is the people that you're ruling over, and the people in the world that you're trying to save. Elaine also finds out that all of the Borderlands leaders have been, like, on vacation and haven't been seen in a while. And then she finds out that the army <laughs> that these Borderland leaders are leading is coming directly her way. There are tens of thousands of them, and they're coming straight for Andor and straight for Camelin. And I really think that this has something to do with the Ashman and the Black Tower being in Andor, but we'll see. While she's hearing all of this from Dylan and learning all of this news, she's been just sipping away at two cups of fork root tea 
And as a result, she starts to get sleepier and sleepier. And Dylan is there with her. So Elaine is like, shit, I've been poisoned. Go get help. And as Dylan is running to do that, she gets stabbed by some guys who are now coming into the room who have run in, I, I'm assuming, to finish the job. But that's only after <laughs> she knocks one of the baddies out with a deftly thrown chair. She just fucking throws a chair at him and <laughs> knocks him out. <laughs> one of the things that I love most about this series is how many times simply throwing objects at someone has turned the tables on a fight. <laughs> I think the best example of this is uh, Nynaeve hitting Mogadian right in between the eyes with something. Where was that? I think that was in Falm. Anyway. <laughs> and that completely turned the tables of their fight and allowed Nynaeve to win. But that was hilarious. And so was the chair thing. <laughs> I actually got pretty sad that Dylan got stabbed because I think she's actually pretty cool. And apparently she's okay, so that's a relief. But I do like Dylan, but I'm still not 100% sure I can trust her yet either. She could be the spy in the palace, for all we know, helping the other two women who are vying for the throne. Like, maybe she doesn't actually think that Elaine is the best person, and she's secretly, I don't know, secretly working with the other two. So anyway, Dylan's down, and then it's just Elaine and one of the bad guys, and as he's like creeping up to her to finish her off, someone stabs his ass from behind. Guess who it was? Guess who? Guess who? Oh, it was just some random fucking guardsman. <laughs> I wanted Brigitte to rush in and save the day, but some random dude does instead. The next chapter is called A Plan Succeeds, and we're still with Elaine, and I was really excited about this chapter because it has a Teleran Riod chapter icon, but it ended up not being all that interesting after all. So basically what happens in this chapter is Elaine recovers from the Fork Root Tea, then Nynaeve and Elaine go into Teleran Riod to meet with Egwene, and they get spied on by three people. A couple interesting things that happen in this chapter. Apparently several of the kin are already getting better at healing the Nynaeve is, which is crazy. I'm so excited to see what they can do. But, you know, the Aes Sedai still want to make them into novices, right? Because that makes fucking sense. Whatever. <laughs> we find out a little bit more about this plot to poison and kill Elaine. Someone laced her tea with fork root, but that was only stage one. Stage two was the bad guys coming in to kill her with a poison dagger, and they have the poison dagger now. Luckily, Melar, the guardsman, has a good arm because he speared that one fucker with the poison dagger in the chest from, like, all the way across the room, which is fucking badass, but more on that later. <laughs> so Elaine finally agrees to let Brigitte assign her a bodyguard, and they decide that Melar will be the captain of the queen's bodyguard or something, and we will discuss this more later. And by the way, I just want to note and remind everyone that Nynaeve is against this appointment from the get-go. She's very against having this Melar guy be the captain of Elaine's bodyguard. He also just seems kind of gross and weird. They keep making jokes about him pinching Elaine because he's like always pinching serving girls and bragging about his conquests. And apparently his backstory doesn't quite line up. But I guess everyone just decides to fucking disregard all of those very big red flags. But more on that later. <laughs> 
Then it's time to go to sleep so they can travel and to tell Ranriod. And of course, Elaine wants to go. And of course, they fucking argue about it. And of course, Elaine ends up going anyway because this is Winter's heart and that's just kind of how things go. <laughs> Someone is stubborn and wants to have their way and then they argue and then that person gets their way anyway. Something interesting that I read was um, next to where she stores her Teleranriode ring, she has a bunch of feathers that she says she considers her greatest treasure. <laughs> what? I'm trying to remember what this is. I remember the feather costumes from the festival in Ebudar or whatever, but I can't think of anything else they would be from. Why does she just have some random feathers? <laughs> I don't understand. So after Nynaeve bullies everyone and leaves, Elaine says something interesting that I've been scratching the surface of for a few books now. She says the woman, referring to Nynaeve, the woman who had denied so hard wanting to be Aes Sedai was becoming very much Aes Sedai. Nynaeve is becoming such an Aes Sedai. And this is so true. You may remember a few book discussions ago, I was talking about how I felt Egwene, Elaine, and Nynaeve's priorities were shifting away from being with Rand, helping Rand, being part of his plans, to being an Aes Sedai and reuniting the tower. They never talk to Rand anymore. They don't, they aren't really part of his inner circle anymore. They don't try to exchange information with him in any way, shape, or form. And yes, they're still doing what they can to prepare for the last battle, but it doesn't seem like they're concerned about Rand and his plans anymore. They're just doing their own thing. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that, because there's really not. Rand isn't going to let them help anyway because he doesn't want to put them in danger, and reuniting the tower and changing the norms in the Aes Sedai culture is also extremely important, but that's not where they started. They started being up with being a part of Rand's circle, being a part of his schemes, and really going with whatever he and Moraine and the rest of the group were going with. But they've been apart from him for a really long time, and it's become more and more Aes Sedai business, and less and less Rand, Moraine, Dragon Reborn business. You know what I mean? So the girls go into Teleranrio to meet Egwene, and the narration mentions something that I'd forgotten about. Elaine feels these Ever, this ever-present sensation of unseen eyes watching them all the time. And that is something that just happens in Teleranriod, and I would really love to learn more about this. And I think it goes beyond them being literally watched during this trip to Teleranriod. I think that there's some presence or something that makes them feel like they're being watched, but I'm not sure why or how or who or what that is. I'm honestly a little bit frustrated with the Supergirls right now because they're being really stupid, careless, and reckless, which is apparently the norm now for Elaine, but I feel like Nynaeve and Egwene should know better. It turns out that during this meeting, several people are watching them and listening to their conversation, and I just don't understand how they could be so fucking careless. Did they forget that the Forsaken know how to navigate Teleranriod? And Mogadian is very, very good at doing that. And that they could absolutely be found by the Forsaken and spied on, or worse. Did they forget the whole thing with Mogadian and Nynaeve and Brigitte? Did that just mean nothing to them? It's just so frustrating. Not to mention the, th the fact that there is literally a Forsaken serving Egwene directly. So of course she'll know about their meetings, and of course she'll come to listen in. 
I know that they don't know that. I know that they don't know Halima is actually a Forsaken, but still, that's the kind of stuff that they have to be thinking about all the time. They're still not thinking creatively. They're still not trying to think one step ahead of the Forsaken or the Dark One. They're just kind of reacting right now, which is exactly what they're going to do now. They're going to react to the fact that they were being spied on during their meeting and then they're going to be more careful, but it's already too late. But of course, before they start their meeting, they go through their usual fucking four wardrobe changes. And of course, we have to have a detailed description of every single fucking wardrobe change. <laughs> also, Egwene is such a badass in Teleran, dude. She's such a pro. She just makes a chair and sits in it without even thinking. And Nynaeve is like, hey, I want to make a chair too. So she tries to, and it, the chair sucks, and she has to think really hard about it. <laughs> oh, that made me laugh. Which, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but I haven't had any of those things that made me laugh lists at the end of an episode in a while, because shit's getting real and dark and scary, and there's not a whole lot to laugh at anymore. So during their meeting, they talk about a few things. They talk about the fork root tea incident, um, Egwene talks about how squirrely the hull is being all the time. They talk about accepting all channeling women into the tower if they test true, which they've talked about so many times in the last few books. We get it. We get it. We get that you're going to do that and that people are going to be mad about it. We don't have to keep talking about it. <laughs> Here's something interesting that happens. Uh, Egwene mentions a grandmother named Sharina Malloy because she's extremely powerful and Egwene wants Nynaeve to meet her. And for some reason, this really freaks Nynaeve out. So I asked in Discord and Aradia, who also does the Broken Earth Spoilers podcast, if you read that whole series, please go check out her podcast because it's awesome. Unfortunately, I've only been able to listen to one episode, but it was really awesome. So go check it out. But anyway, uh, Aradia is very knowledgeable about the Wheel of Time. So I'm, I can often ask her questions and she'll give me an answer without me Googling it and getting spoiled. So she told me Sharina was the Aes Sedai advisor to Malkir's court in Nynaeve's third vision whenever she was going through the uh, accepted test rings. So in her trip into the third ring, Sharina is there. So when Nynaeve hears about this woman in the real world and hears her name spoken, it reminds her of that world in the third ring where she was able to marry and have children with Lan, which is probably not going to happen. I mean, it could, but I feel like Nynaeve has more sense than to have children when the world's ending, unlike Nynaeve, or unlike Elaine. But we'll talk about that more later. <laughs> oh, trust me, we're going to talk about that a lot. Also, Egwene has apparently changed her mind about the Aes Sedai Oaths because now she's all for them and she will continue to require all the Aes Sedai to take oaths as Amerlin. I really hope this doesn't come back to bite them in the ass because it really feels like it's going to. And Nynaeve brings up a very interesting point and that is the fact that the kin don't take oaths and they live longer than the Aes Sedai do. And now I'm wondering it, why that is. I guess that the oaths shorten their lives if that's the only difference, I guess. Does that mean that the Black Aja have even shorter lives because they switch oaths? Or they take more than one set of oaths? 
Is Galena completely fucked after taking three or more oaths? Does each oath shorten their life more? One of the kin is 600 years old because she hasn't taken any oaths, so how long could the Aes Sedai live? And Egwene has kind of a solution to this. She proposes that any Aes Sedai who wants to retire can be freed of her oaths and retire into the kin, which I guess is a good compromise unless you don't want to be a member of the kin for your entire retirement. Nynaeve also says something, another interesting thing. <laughs> Nynaeve also mentions that if Halima's massages were any good, Egwene would stop having headaches. And at that point, I was like, oh my god, I hope Nynaeve figures out that Halima is a forsaken and rescues Egwene from that situation. Please, Nynaeve, please, please, please figure that out and get her out of that situation because I hate that Halima is so close to Egwene. Then... After all of this conversation happens, they discover that they're being spied on by someone, and later we learn that they're being spied on by at least three different people that we know, if not more. Then we switch perspectives and we meet some new, or possibly old, <laughs> Black Asha. I might be forgetting them, but we meet Chesmal. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher all these. Chesmal, Ants, Anse, <laughs> Eldrith, and Tamale. And I think I remember Tamale. But apparently, Eldris Warder is hunting her down because he suspects that she's a piece of shit, but she has been masking the bond to keep him away from her while she does evil shit. And like every time he can feel her, he comes for her because he knows where she is now. It's just so crazy. I think it is so fucked up to keep your warder away from you like that because the bond has some serious effects on your emotions. And I feel like it would be distressing for them. And Inez's aunt's... God, how do you say her name? <laughs> anyway, apparently her warders are always trying to find her when they can sense her. So anytime they can sense her, they start coming for her. And I think that's because they're also trying to kill her because she sucks. But one of her warders is a dark friend. And she also mentions that they'll probably do anything that she says anyway. So... She probably really doesn't care if they come to find her. Uh, that's just so fucked up still. Anyway, I guess these fucks are up to their old shit because Tamale is one of the people that was spying on the girls in Teleranriode. There was also another man and someone Tamale couldn't see that was also spying on them. Apparently, these sisters have some sort of long fluted rod that Mogadian thought she hid. I have no idea what this rod is about, but man... <laughs> There's another rod in play. Another rod in the story. Why is it fluted? <laughs> the last point of view for this chapter is just really quick, and it's that of Lady Cheyenne, who I still think is Simarog, and we learn that Falion is her serving girl. And remember, Falion is a super black Aja, and that's one of the biggest reasons why I think she's Simarog. Who else would have a black sister as a pet and a servant? Apparently, Falion got her serving assignment directly from Moradin, and I don't think Moradin would just give a black sister to any old Joe Schmo, unless she's, like, a very powerful dark friend. Anyway, while they're having this conversation, guess who walks in? <laughs> it's the captain of Elaine's fucking bodyguard. <laughs> so clearly there's some fuckery here. That guy is obviously a dark friend. This guy was supposed to be the hero of the piece, and that's when he got promoted, but now it seems like he might have actually been the perpetrator, and he saved Elaine just to get closer to her or something like that. 
whatever it is, it's fuckery, and there's definitely a plot afoot. Okay, the next chapter, we're back with Rand, and I wasn't entirely right about Rand and Min going to Andor, so they would be closer to a north destination. Um, instead, they're going into Andor, into Camelin, into the palace, sneaking Rand in disguised using the Mask of Mirrors, which is neat. I like that uh, they use that to sneak in. Uh, that's a way that I haven't seen it used yet. I think we actually see him in his disguise in Chapter 7, The Streets of Camelin. Elaine and Brigitte just got into that argument about saddling and titles and all of that. And Elaine, the narration says, abruptly she realized she was standing there scowling at nothing. <laughs> and then she sees a pimply and gangly serving boy coming down the hall, and she gives him some orders, and he looks at her serpent ring and squeaks, and I was wondering if maybe this is Rand's genuine reaction to seeing that Elaine has a serpent ring Although I feel like he already knew that, so that could be completely wrong. <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time. I like that Rand hears that Nynaeve goes by Nynaeve Sedai, and he assumes that she's still pretending and does not just assume that she's sided with Elida, which is interesting because I'm guessing he knows that she would never do that. And actually, he really does not want to let the whole idea that she's still pretending go, which gets kind of annoying later. Something interesting stuck out to me in this chapter. Luce Theron says something. Let me find it. Huh? Where is this? 286. <laughs> he says, he says or he thinks or whatever in the back of Ren's head, your plans fail because you want to live, madman. Accept that you are dead. Accept it and stop tormenting me, madman. Okay, what? <laughs> I don't understand. Why is Luce Theron... Sorry, I got book problems. <laughs> Why is Luce Theron telling Rand not to torment him? Rand didn't invite you into his head. Something so weird is going on with them. I just know it. What am I missing? I don't know. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Something is definitely afoot with them. And I cannot put my finger on it. And I don't know if it's because I don't have the information to know what's going on yet. Like if that's something that will be revealed to me later. But I just know that something weird is going on. Then we switch to Nynaeve's perspective. And this is actually kind of an interesting part. She's training the sea folk because that's part of their bargain. And they are trying to determine if she's lying about not being able to break shields. Because that would benefit them immensely, right? Oh, no, you can't break a shield. It's not possible. So when we shield, you don't even try. So you won't break out. So that's smart. So they decide to prove their point <laughs> by shielding her. And at first she's like, oh, no, I can't do anything. I can't get out of this. It's not possible. But then, kind of like Rand, she starts feeling around the shield because she only has five seconds to break the shield before they turn her upside down <laughs> and she finds a soft spot and she starts trying to push against it and break out of it and she isn't able to and this is interesting because when we saw Rand try to break out of the shield he also couldn't do anything to those like more soft and flexible points but when they were tied off and hard he could wriggle in and break them anyway I think it's the same deal here but we're going to have to watch Nynaeve figure it out from step one, where Rand has already figured it out. 
And I'm going to take this minute to bitch that if they were just talking to each other, both of them would know that. But no. <laughs> they don't even talk about it when they see each other. But I think some people might think this is redundant to see the discovery of the same talent again. But I love watching characters try to figure out things that I already know or other characters already know. So I'm here for it. Nynaeve is so upset about the whole being shielded and threatened to be upside down <laughs> that she actually cusses, which is rare, and that made me laugh. After she leaves, she walks into the hall, and Olivia, the super powerful Damane, is just out there free as a bird with no one watching her or anything. And normally, I'd be like, fuck yeah, power to the people, let the Damani free. But this woman is stronger than anyone else up there with the Forsaken, and she's Shan-Chan. And I just think, you know, maybe let's keep an eye on the panther prowling in the fucking halls right now, because she's dangerous and I don't trust her. And if you need any more proof of the fact that she's up to no good, let me read something. You guys like my book flipping noises? Okay, she, they're talking about the Ashaman, and she says... Those Ashamans say they're weapons, and they aren't bad. I know for a fact, but I'm better. Oh, shit. So we've seen the Ashaman literally make people explode, and if Olivia thinks that she's so much better than they are when they can literally make people explode, then I'm terrified to find out what else she can do. Then she leaves, Olivia leaves, and Nynaeve is still standing in the hallway, and... Talon, I think it's how you say her name, Talon, who was the windfinder, I think, that was shielding Nynaeve earlier, who's very strong, she comes out and starts begging to go to the tower and be a novice. And since, I mean, they're just accepting everyone else in the fucking world right now, so why not? <laughs> Apparently, the sea folk occasionally send women to the tower, and there are a few sea folk Aes Sedai which is interesting, but apparently they're all weak in the power. Also, I learned that when a mistress of ship dies, her windfinder, like, starts at the lowest level again. Anyway, so somehow Talan gets Nynaeve to agree without her realizing until it was too late. So now that she has that to deal with. <laughs> and then suddenly Lan is there, and then this next part is so suggestive, it's hilarious. So Nynaeve and Lan are hugging, and the narration mentions something about her having to shift his sword hilt out of her ribs. <laughs> then Nynaeve is like, take me back up to our rooms and don't let me put any clothes on for a year, you hunky man. <laughs> so then they go back to their room to do some banging, and guess who's coming for dinner? It's pimply little Rand fuck. And Ran ripples and transforms back into, like, regular wartless Rand. <laughs> and then immediately, Rand and Lan are talking shit to each other about Lan marrying Nynaeve. And even after that, they still have their fucking hackles up throughout the whole conversation. And Rand finally learns a little bit more about what's going on with the Supergirls. He learns that Elida is an usurper. Which would have been nice to know a while ago, just saying. <laughs> he learns that Egwene is now considered the true Amerlin and has probably already gotten to the tower to start her siege, which, by the way, am I going to see that in this book or not? Hello. <laughs> Nynaeve also makes sure that Rand knows that she is Aes Sedai. Thank you very fucking much, you wordy fuck. 
Anyway, apparently the whole point of this trip is that Rand needs Nightingale to channel into the female Choden Call so he can cleanse the taint. And she agrees, and eventually they also agree that she's going to help him find the rebel Ashaman because Rand is still planning on killing them first. The next chapter is A Lily in Winter. <laughs> and if you've read the series, you probably already know what happens in this chapter. So I'm going to do a little bit of griping here. The one good thing I have to say about this chapter is that it could have been way worse. <laughs> so in this chapter, this is what happens. So Rand is in the palace where Elaine and Avienda also are, and Min. So Min goes to find Elaine and Avienda because Rand is in the palace, which is exactly what he asked her not to do, but we all fucking knew it was going to happen, right? <laughs> the women confront him, and they all end up bonding to each other, which is completely fucking pointless for men. <laughs> and then Rand and Elaine fuck. <laughs> So I need to start this by saying that romance is already not really my thing. The things I love most about fantasy are magic and dragons. Magic and dragons. <laughs> I do not give a flying fuck about characters falling in love. If it's well done, it's sweet, but I don't really care. So that being said, I hated this chapter not only because there's too much romance in it, but because some things were just really dumb. First of all, why is Min bonded to Rand? <laughs> She's not a Chandler. Yeah, she can like feel him and know his emotions, but she can't mask the bond. So she's just going to feel Rand fucking any of the other two and not be able to do anything about it. It's also weird that Rand is bonded to all three, but then Elaine and Avienda are also bonded, but the other two women don't try to bond to Min. So I guess they don't care about Min. It just seems like she's the outsider here. The second is that Min literally tells Elaine that Rand will impregnate her, which is exactly what's going to happen. And I just feel like this is a really, really fucking bad time for them to have a kid or two, which is what we're working with. Rand is not going to have time to help you raise your kid. They will grow up not having a dad. Rand is probably about to die. The world is fucking ending, and most importantly, every bad guy in the world is gonna find out that Elaine is pregnant, and boom, there's another way to hurt Rand. Here's just a small list of some of Rand's vulnerabilities in no particular order. His friends. He doesn't like to kill women. He has Alana's bond. Any of the three women he's fucking. <laughs> and now he's dizzy all the time and can't channel, and Ashaman are probably not above trying to kill him, and the rebel Ashaman are probably dark friends or one of them is a forsaken or both. That's kind of the theory that I'm working with now. I'm probably forgetting some, but the list is already too fucking long to add pregnant wife and children to the list, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> also, what's going to happen to Elaine's bid for the throne if she's pregnant by the dragon reborn? I honestly don't know. What are people going to think about that? Are they going to be happy because the Dragon Reborn is so important and they need him to save the world? Or are they going to be upset because they mistrust the Dragon Reborn and think that he sided with Elida? And I think that both of those are probably going to be true, but which one is going to be the louder voice? And how will that affect Elaine's bid for the throne? Also, I get that people have kids at the wrong time all the time. It just happens, you know, or whatever. But when you have a friend who can see into the future and an effective method of birth control at your disposal, then you really have no excuse for getting pregnant at the wrong time. That's just my opinion. And I think that 
Elaine being pregnant and there being two children is going to play some role in the series as we go forward. Like, somebody is definitely going to figure that out and some fuckery is going to happen. Also, apparently Avienda's going to have four of Rand's kids. When? <laughs> when are they going to do that? When is that going to happen? Because she's not going to have four kids at once. There's like nine, at least nine months between them. And the worst part about this whole chapter is not the fact that Rand and Elaine are fucking. It's how all the people bonded to the two react to them fucking. All of them are having a whole moment together where they can feel <laughs> Rand and Elaine fucking. And they know immediately what's going on and what it is that they're feeling, and they keep making horrifying fucking comments and having horrifying thoughts in reaction to the situation. So let me just read a couple. <laughs> okay, this is Min. Abruptly, she realized that the bundle of emotions and sensations was no longer the same as at first. There was a red roaring to it now, <laughs> like wildfire raging through t a tender forest. What could light, she stumbled, and just caught her footing short of tumbling. If she had known this furnace, this fierce hunger was inside him. <laughs> she would have been afraid to let him touch her. Oh my god. On the other hand, it might be nice knowing she had sparked such an inferno. She could not wait to see whether she produced the same effect as she stumbled again and this time had to catch herself on an ornately carved high chest. Oh light, Elaine. Her face felt like a furnace. This was like peeking through the bed curtains. Yes, it fucking is. <laughs> okay, hold on. Here's another one. <clears throat> okay, this is Brigitte. And this is just a little short one. So it says, She trembled and visibly controlled herself, but even then she was breathing hard. Her legs did not seem to want to hold her upright. Licking her lips, she swallowed and went on angrily. <laughs> Burn her. I can't concentrate enough to shake it off. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, uh, there's one more here. Uh, this is Minigan. That was enough to make her aware of Rand again. That raging furnace was still there, hardly lessened at all, but thank the light, he was no longer... Blood rushed into her cheeks. He had laid often enough in her arms, catching her breath in the tangle of their bedding, but this really did seem like peeping. Oh my god, that's so gross. It's so gross and weird. And I wish that I had never read this chapter because it feels so icky. I think the whole it feeling like you're peeking through the bed curtains thing is exactly why this chapter made me feel so uncomfortable. Also, men cannot mask the bond. So like I mentioned earlier, she has to experience Rand fucking the other two and won't be able to do anything about it but drink. <laughs> And who knows how Alana is reacting to this? Well, we might know how Alana is reacting to this, but we'll talk about that in a second. So they decide that if they can't do anything about it, they're just going to get drunk, and that's the end of the chapter. Just kidding. <laughs> because do you remember that super powerful Demane, Olivia? She's gone. <laughs> she ends up disappearing and getting away. So no one is shocked by that, especially not us, right? Also, Rand, Nynaeve, and Lan are missing because they're going to hunt down some baddies and cleanse a taint or two. One cool thing is that Min looks at Brigitte for the first time and the auras are crazy and there's a ton of them and she just knows instantly that that's Brigitte. 
And I think this might have something to do with the fact that Min is so closely tied to the pattern with her visions. And I think that's also how Matt figures it out. Because he's also really closely tied to the pattern, obviously. Like, he probably has memories and might, you know, have some memories of Brigitte. But it doesn't take him very long either. And I think that has something to do with him, him being so tied to the pattern. The next chapter is called Wonderful News, and first of all, there is no wonderful news in this series, so I already knew that this was a lie. <laughs> We're with Catswain and Kyrian, and she's trying to figure out why all of the Aes Sedai prisoners decided to swear fealty to Rand at the same time. And if you remember, we know that Beldine, which is one of the Aes Sedai prisoners, prisoners that's ready to swear, swear fealty, she had the mind control treatment from Varen, and I think all of them did as well. So either all of the prisoners really did decide to swear fealty to Rand at the same time, which is possible, and I'm not discrediting that at all, but there's also a possibility that this is Varen's compulsion at work. And apparently they haven't been allowed to talk to each other, so that makes the likelihood of them plotting this themselves even more unlikely. Catswain also brings up the point that some of them are Red Aja, and what in the world could possibly make a Red Sister swear to the Dragon Reborn? And I think there's three possibilities. Compulsion, which is possible. Coercion, which is also possible. And coincidence, which is very unlikely. <laughs> Apparently, both Varen and Catswain are having trouble sleeping, so Cerulea is giving Varen some sort of tincture or something to help her sleep, and I have some questions about this. First, what is that shit? <laughs> Second, why are they having trouble sleeping? Is someone fucking with them like Halima is fucking with Egwene? I don't think so, but that's a possibility. Is there anything happening to Varen while she's under the influence of this tincture. Is something afoot with that? Is somebody waiting for her to take her tincture and then going in and like looking at her notes or something like that? Which I think she has some sp special like code or something that she writes in, so that might not help anyway, but that's definitely a possibility. But I think the most likely scenario is that Varen isn't actually taking it and she's giving it to someone else so she can fuck with them instead. Because apparently it just has to be added to like wine or juice or whatever. And that would be super easy to do, right? That's like, that's a fundamental element of fantasy is the fact that wine could be poisoned. <laughs> Catswain also mentions using blackmail on the three Ashaman that are with them. But I'm not sure what she has against them or what she's having them do. That's something that I'll be keeping my eye on in the future. Dahmer the Ashaman has apparently healed... Irgain's stilling, and he definitely hasn't spoken to Nynaeve, so I guess he must have figured it out on his own, which supports my theory that as we go through the series, all of these lost talents are going to start opening themselves back up to the channelers, or they'll be like shaken loose from the pattern and I don't know, something like that. At some point, Alana ends up collapsing in the hallway, and I'm trying to figure out what's going on here, because there are a couple things it could be. Rand and Elaine fucking, which, you know, I don't know. I Would that really make her pass out? I mean, it affected everybody else. Uh, it could be a mind trap, but more on that later. It could be a dark friend or forsaken at work. Or maybe she's sick or something. Who knows? But anyway, she's still unconscious. And Ivan, 
Alana's other warder says that she seems like she's afraid to wake up, that she's too scared to, which is suspicious and makes me think this is dark friend forsaken shit. Two different Aes Sedai try healing with her and it doesn't work for either of them. And Varen also seems really concerned by the situation. The narration says that Varen looks terrified by this. And I'm wondering if maybe Varen was slipping Alana the sleepy shit and now she's gonna die or something because it was too much. I mean, Varen has to be exploiting Alana somehow. She knows that Alana is bonded to Rand and I guarantee there's something fucking happening with those two because, I mean, it's very possible that Varen has used compulsion on Alana and she's making her do things that are affecting Rand or something like that. I don't know. I don't think I talked about this in the last episode, but Darlin is going to be Rand's steward in Tyr, but that doesn't explain the crown and men's visions yet. But I'm also wondering if maybe it does because he might rule Tyr after Rand dies or after the last battle, or maybe the crown of Tyr is a reward for something that he does later, which is something that I've talked about before. Then we switch perspectives to Demandred and Grendel, and Demandred is mad because he doesn't know where Rand is. And it's like, aha! <laughs> Rand's plan worked! Apparently, they drink wine out of glasses made of Quindiar because they're fucking Forsaken, and I guess that's something that Forsaken do. <laughs> I thought that was, like, super rare. Apparently, they have it just stockpiled to make dishes with. Grendel says that Demandred and Ozengar were in charge of watching Rand and keeping up with him, which means that they're close to him in some capacity. And I have a couple theories. Maybe they're hiding at Ashaman or Nobles or Aiel. Uh, probably not Aiel, but who knows with Mask of Mirrors, it could be them. I'm not ruling that out. What matters is they've been watching Rand and that's a problem. Also, they're going to know as soon as Rand starts trying to cleanse the taints. <laughs> and the Forsaken apparently doubt that Rand can cleanse the taint. And Grindel makes a good point about this. She says that if Rand cleanses the taint, then the male Forsaken won't have to depend on the Dark One to use their power without going mad. So how will the Dark One guarantee their loyalty if there's no taint on... <laughs> I almost said there's no taint on the cleanse. <laughs> when there's no taint on the male half of the source. We also learned that during the War of Power, 12 Forsaken died, and that's kind of an answer to my question that I had, I think, in the last episode, where I was wondering how many Forsaken there have been, you know, since there were Forsaken. <laughs> then Moradin shows up, and Sindane is with him, and Moradin mentions that someone named Isam is hunting for Pat and Fane, but I don't remember who that is or if I'm even supposed to know who that is. Then, for whatever reason, Moradin kills a rat, which is such an Ishmael thing to do, which supports my theory that he's actually Ishmael. Sindane seems terrified of Moradin, just like Mogadian is, and I'm pretty sure that she's the other mind-trapped. She has the same reaction to him as Mogadian does every time he does anything. And it makes sense that the Dark One would be angry that she was defeated, but still want her around because she's powerful. So maybe he had Moradin punish her in the same way after he brings her back. And the narration even calls both of them Moradin's pets. Demandred has also apparently had the same thought, but then he thinks that 
He knows Lanfear was stronger than this girl is, so he doesn't think that they're the same person, which could have been another part of her punishment, coming back and giving getting a second chance but not being as powerful. So I'm not letting Demandred's internal thoughts sway me from this. Morden says when Rand uses the Choden call, they'll be able to find him, and now they're actually going to go and kill him instead of saving him from Mashadar and stuff like that. So something has changed, and I think it's because he's actually planning to cleanse the taint. Now they're like, oh, okay, well, we definitely have to kill him now. And then, this is how the fucking chapter ends. Let me read it to you. Um, so this is, this is about Moradin. The man was nameless for now, but perhaps matters could be arranged, so he did not get another body the next time he died. Perhaps it could be arranged soon. So this is confirmation that Moradin is definitely Ishmael, because Ishmael died. We saw him die. He was a corpse. And now we know that Moradin is a forsaken that died and was brought back. So this is definitely Ishmael, 100%. 100,000 million billion zillion percent. <laughs> there are a couple of things that I want to talk about really quick before I wrap this episode up. And what, the first one is, I watched Daniel Green's Wheel of Time History video, and it said it was spoiler-free and that none of this was in the book, so I watched it. And one of the things that he talked about is that the whole reason that Archer Hawkwing started the siege of Tarvalin is because Ishmael was his advisor and convinced him to do it. Holy fuck. That is such a huge deal. Oh my god, that's so crazy. I can't believe that. I can't believe that I, I wouldn't have learned that if I had just read the series because that's a huge deal. We already knew that Ishmael has been out and about in the world for a really long time. And apparently, he's had that kind of influence on leaders and generals and people in power for a really long time and has actually really affected history with his behavior, which is so cool. That's such an interesting element to the series. I also have kind of a wild theory that has nothing to do with Winter's Heart, except it kind of does. I can't remember what the red dot that... Nynaeve wears on her forehead is called. It's It starts with a K or something like that. But I've seen the cover of A Memory of Light. And now that I know that Rand has to have two channeling women with him in order to use Kalendor safely, I began to see the cover of Memory of Light in a different way. Because now I know that those two women are with him because he needs them to use Kalendor safely. And the woman in the yellow dress has what looks to be a red dot in the middle of her eyebrows. So I'm pretty sure that that's Nynaeve. My other wild theory is that the other woman on the cover who is wearing blue and has a blue gem on her forehead, I think that's Moraine. <laughs> and that's all I can say about that. I think that's Moraine and Nynaeve and they're with Rand during the final moments where he defeats the Dark One and everything resets. Oh my god, I'm so excited. And that's it. That's all for this discussion of chapters 7 through 13 of Winter's Heart. Uh, I'm still really enjoying the series. I'm still excited to continue because in the next chapter, I meet a certain 
Shan Chan Empress that is infamous and widely loved in this community, and I'm very excited about that. So thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at StuckOnArrakis. My email is StuckOnArrakis at gmail.com, and my Discord link is in the description of this podcast, along with all of the other links that I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast episode. Please, please, please tune in to the charity podcast-a-thon that we're doing if you can. Uh, again, I'll be on from 1.30 to 2.45, and I'm really excited about the great conversation that I'll be having with DT and Lauren, and you guys aren't going to want to miss it. And you're really not going to want to miss all of the other content creators that are going to be joining us. It's going to be so much fun. Thank you guys all for listening, and I hope I can see you there. Bye.